going, one final thing that I need to say about DOXA, and that is that as we mentioned last week, um, there is a uh, uh, collection that we're going to take up. Amy Middlebrook is heading up, gathering some nursery workers from other churches to help serve us so that nobody in our body has to miss any of the sessions in DOXA. So just be aware of the fact that we're going to be taking up a collection for those serving us next weekend. Matthew chapter 11, I hope you have your Bibles with you today and that you'll turn to Matthew 11 if you do. Our passage for today can be found on page 816 in the Bibles that you'll find in the backs of the chairs. 816. Matthew eleven twenty five. In this passage, we find the continuation of the narrative in which Matthew describes Jesus' ongoing ministry of teaching, preaching, and serving others. In the context of our passage today, we're coming right off of some, some hard and some stark words from Jesus. Words regarding the destiny of those who reject him. Words regarding how their destiny is one of judgment. But he had also said that those who had a front row seat, as it were, to his mighty works and still reject him will suffer a greater kind of judgment. And I'm just going to wait a second until that ring goes away. What do you need me to do, Brandon? Because I start seeing faces, that means they can't pay attention to the sermon. Ryan, you want to jump in and maybe I'll pull this mic away from my face a little bit so it's not so bad for now. Anyway, he said that those who had a kind of a front row seat to his ministry but still rejected him would suffer a greater judgment. Is that better? Okay, great. Ryan has the magic touch. And so these next words from Jesus in our text for today come in this context. And I find that interesting. These words of Jesus that you heard my dad read just a moment ago, words that if you're a Christian, you're for a, for a, a long period of time, you're probably familiar with, and they come right off of those difficult words right before it. Now, it's worth noting and identifying that these events recorded by Matthew may or may not have been recorded strictly chronologically. Part of it depends on who you think was the uh, first sort of original gospel writer and which of the synoptic authors depended on their account a little bit for their own pattern. Part of it also depends on what the goal of each specific gospel author was. In other words, you have to consider what exactly each author was seeking to accomplish through his specific writing of his gospel. And thus far, we've seen that Matthew's goal in writing his gospel has been focused on at least five different things. One of them is identifying and proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Another one, that he really was and is the heir of David and thus the king of the kingdom of God. Third would be that the good news of Jesus is for the whole world, not only the Jews. Fourth would be that those in God's kingdom can expect opposition and difficulty and suffering as they follow and obey King Jesus, and they can expect the presence of King Jesus with them. 
as they follow him. And then fifth and finally, that true followers of Jesus are identified not by a world-centered mindset or lifestyle or by worldly wisdom, but by humble, faith-fueled, total, sold-out, self-sacrificing devotion to Jesus. And that does fit with what we're seeing in our text today. Matthew, as the author of this book, wants his readers to see Jesus for whom he is, both the just judge and the gracious Savior, both the king who proclaims woes, like he did in the previous passage, for those who oppose him, and the shepherd who gently calls sheep to his side. And so it's on the heels of these pronouncements of woes Matthew records these words of Jesus that he declared, Matthew tells us right there at the beginning of verse 25, at that time. Interestingly, Luke's gospel does give us some helpful context. In his chapter 10, we see that in verses 17 through 20, the return of the 72 with joy after Jesus had sent them out. Uh, uh, sent, them, sent these 72 out after he had sent the 12. And then later on in that same chapter 10 in verses 21 through 22, we find some very familiar words if you were listening when my dad read just a moment ago. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so we find the same words that begin our text for today in Matthew 11, right there in Luke 10. So what we're looking at here in Matthew 11 are words from Jesus shortly after his pronouncement of woes against those who reject him in the context, broader context, of his preaching to the Jews about how the message and mission of God had rarely been met by the people of God with the kind of enthusiasm and embracing as it should. And instead, as we saw last week, the people of God have always acted like spoiled children and protested his plan and purpose whenever it didn't perfectly fit their expectations and plans. And so I think Jesus' words coming after that makes sense. And I think his words here in our passage today also reveal the heart of Jesus. And I don't mean to say that Jesus' intention, immediate, most central intention of these words here is to say, hey everyone, I'm about to say things so that you will know what my heart is. But I do think that these words, the end of which, by the way, that we're perhaps more familiar with, are only recorded in Matthew. But the beginning of which are also included in Luke are connected to a larger message and show us where Jesus is coming from, you could say, in terms of what I mean by saying what his heart is. 
Perhaps you know that if a person pursues a path in medicine and eventually goes into the field of heart and cardiovascular care, one of the basics that needs to be known very early on is the structure and design of the human heart. And one of those basics is that the heart has four chambers. In fact, as I understand it, that's something you learn long before med school, even in middle school or, or high school. And I think thinking in terms of how the human heart organ was designed by God, having four chambers may be helpful for us as we consider four chambers, as it were, of Jesus' heart here in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. The first part of Jesus' words in our passage today reveal what I'm calling the first chamber of his heart, which is where we see Jesus' prayer and a heart of gratitude. This verse 25, after it says, at that time Jesus declared, begins with words of gratitude. You know, I think one of the many unfortunate casualties of the COVID pandemic for our church was the annual gathering of giving thanks at the Thanksgiving season. It might be greatly beneficial for us to rekindle that tradition, perhaps even this year. And perhaps you've been part of something like that before, where people break into spontaneous declarations of thanks to God for one or more aspects of his character, nature, and work. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Spontaneous thanksgiving. Right after Matthew's record of Jesus' woes on those who reject him, he records this brief public prayer of thanks. And he says, starting in the middle of verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I say brief because you'll notice in verse 27 that he stops addressing the Father and begins to refer to him. And so there in verse 25 and 26, we have this prayer of Jesus. And in this prayer, as he gives thanks to the Father, what he's thankful for is quite interesting, isn't it? He's thankful that the sovereign ruler of the universe has not allowed the wise and understanding to see, he says, these things, right there in the middle of verse 25, and instead has allowed little children to see the things that Jesus is referring to. Fascinating. What are these things being hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to little children? Well, I think in the context, it's plain that what he's talking about is the kingdom, matters of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom, and what it takes to be in the kingdom. He's saying that the Father has hidden these kingdom matters from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And that fits very much with what Jesus has already been saying throughout the previous portions of Matthew's gospel, doesn't it? Because according to Jesus, in order to be part of his kingdom, one must humble themselves to the point of acknowledging that they are helpless and hopeless sinners 
incapable of the righteousness that God's kingdom requires. And therefore, find themselves under his judgment unless he graciously and mercifully intervenes and makes a way for them to enter in. And Jesus has been saying that that way is him. That he's the Messiah. That he's God's chosen one. That he is the anointed one who has come to bring the salvation of God to sinners through faith in him. And so no wonder that his kingdom message and mission wouldn't be seen by the wise and understanding. You see, Jesus is not here saying that literal wisdom and understanding are necessarily bad things. Rather, Jesus is talking about prideful people who consider themselves wise and full of understanding. In this context, Jesus has been saying that those who are, who are upset, those who are troubled, those who are disturbed by the fact that his kingdom message and mission doesn't appear to be jiving with their expectations are like spoiled children. We saw that in the previous passage. In other words, those who think they know better, those who say that's not how this is supposed to go, it's supposed to go this way, those who think themselves full of wisdom and understanding. And this fits with the previous context, as I said, in Matthew's gospel as well. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 through 34, Jesus casts out a demon and the Pharisees wouldn't believe it because they were wise and understanding and they thought they had it figured out and therefore they attributed Jesus' wonderful miracle with demonic influence. Earlier in chapter 9, some other self-righteous people were indignant about Jesus basically partying with sinners and not engaging with the traditional fast of the day. He's not what they thought the Messiah ought to be. In chapter 8, a Gentile city actually banished Jesus and rejected him because of his messianic ministry in their region. His ministry of salvation proving to be sort of interfering with their own community status quo of business success and financial gain. And of course, farther back throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes traditions and even laws and turns them on their head in a sense showing that all of those traditions and all of those laws should have gone far deeper than any of them had realized. He didn't meet the typical Jewish expectation. And even in this broader context, Jesus is saying that the wise and understanding have the kingdom of God hidden from them. Evidently, humility is absolutely essential to kingdom residency. Now don't be mistaken, I'm not saying as a way to earn one's way into the kingdom, be as humble as you can and then you'll make it into the kingdom. No, but rather I'm saying that humility is an essential partner to the faith that is required. Faith, true faith, says I can't do anything to make it into the kingdom of God Jesus is my only hope. And that, of course, is a spirit of humility. And as I said, we do need to be careful not to turn this into an application of, well, go be more humble, and then maybe God will let you in. 
But my friends, particularly those of us who are already believers in this room or listening to my voice later on a recording, we also have to be careful not to miss the absolutely essential nature of humility in the kingdom of God. It's not that hard to spot prideful people, is it? Pride certainly does come in various shapes and sizes, but it usually doesn't take you very long to notice in someone a spirit of self-sufficiency, of condescension towards others, of a sort of aloofness that views themselves above others, or even of self-righteousness, whether it be talking about the good things they've done or being judgmental about failures of others. How it looks can also take various shapes and sizes. It could be someone who rarely, if ever, budges in an argument, no matter how much you reason with them, or no matter how gracious and long-suffering you are with them. It can look like someone who seems to be unable to conceive of the possibility of not knowing everything about a certain subject or another. And so these people don't claim to be perfect necessarily, but when it comes to your interactions with them and when you can observe their life choices, they want you to think they're pretty close to perfect. You know people like this, don't you? Maybe you're one of them. Oh, my friends, if you tend to be a self-sufficient, self-confident, and stubborn person, beware. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus said, because the rich man is under the impression that he has it all together and doesn't need anything. And the same goes for the wise and understanding in this passage. They think they've got it figured out. They know what's best. They know what everyone else should be doing. They know what they should be doing. They know what God should be doing. And of course, one of the biggest dangers in this way of thinking and of life is that as soon as God isn't doing exactly what they expected Him to do, they begin to feel as though all of their beliefs and practices are falling apart. When in reality, it's just that they're not seeing, excuse me, they are seeing how little they really are in comparison to God and that He is in control, not them. And they don't like it very much. And so it's only when prideful, self-righteous, self-sufficient people throw themselves at the feet of Jesus in desperation and humility that entrance into the kingdom is granted. That's how it works. And so I ask you, in light of Jesus' words here, have you exercised this kind of humility? Have you displayed it in a change of heart from self-trust to trust in God? From self-sufficiency to finding your sufficiency in Christ? From self-worship to the worship of Christ? Or are you like these wise and understanding from whom the kingdom has been hidden by the Father? I'll ask you this too. If you are a believer, is your life being continually transformed from reliance on your own wisdom and understanding to more and more humble submission to the kingship of Jesus in all things such, as, such that you become like a little child in dependence on Him? Or 
Does your life look like someone who believes they're in control, knows how things are supposed to go, and doesn't ever waver? Beware pride, my friends. Commentator I've referenced multiple times, Doug O'Donnell, said it this way in his commentary on this passage. He who has pride as his mother cannot have God as his father. But isn't it interesting that Jesus' heart in regard to these truths about the nature of the kingdom being hidden from those who think themselves wise and understanding is a heart of thankfulness? I don't know, maybe that doesn't feel to you as something that fits with a warm and fuzzies only kind of Jesus. Because this means that Jesus views his Father's sovereignty over who does and doesn't enter the kingdom and his requirement of humility and total submission is a good thing and something to be thankful for. Now the scope of a discussion regarding the tension that we all need in our understanding of the sovereignty of God and the accountability and responsibility of man is a scope that's beyond a sermon on this specific text at this moment. But I will say this, clearly a tension is required because in this very same passage where Jesus says a little bit later on that he invites all to come to him and find rest for their souls. Jesus briefly earlier affirms the sovereignty of God in veiling the truth from some and revealing it to others. And so, yes, my friends, go read about the sovereignty of God and that rich, important doctrine and the doctrine of predestination and learn about what the Bible says about election and do your best to get it right and to be biblically sound in all things. But remember, even in this passage, there is a tension when it comes to responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. You can't hold to one and not the other and remain biblically sound. To reject one or the other is to reject the gracious will of God that Jesus is thankful for here. Jesus' heart towards his Father's absolute sovereignty over the revelation of the kingdom to some and not to others is gratitude. And so I would submit to you that ours should be too. Gratitude, because therefore it's only by grace that any of us has ever received it. And gratitude that God is being glorified by his good and gracious will. Speaking of glory, I think that's what we see in the sort of second chamber of Jesus' heart revealed in the words of this passage where we see Jesus' authority and his heart of glory. First a heart of gratitude, now a heart of glory. Here's what I mean. Already... Throughout Matthew's Gospel, we have seen the authority of Jesus on display, and therefore, Him glorified. Think about what we've seen. I'll go back briefly through some of these passages again. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what did the people marvel at? That He taught as one with authority, and they were marveling at Him and glorifying God. When he calmed the storm, what did the disciples say? Who is this man that the wind and waves obey him? He has authority. They're glorifying him. Before he cast out the demons in Gadara, those very demons asked for his what? Permission to leave and go into the pigs. 
When he healed the paralytic and declared that man's sins forgiven, what did Jesus claim? He claimed to have the authority of the Son of Man to forgive sins. And so already, all over the Gospel of Matthew, the authority of Jesus has been one of the main points. And it continues here in verse 27 where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so here's why I say that the words of Jesus here reveal a heart of glory. What I mean is that His heart delights in the mutual glory and enjoyment that our triune God shares together. And what I mean by triune, if you don't know, is one God Three persons in one God, all of them together sharing delight and enjoyment and glory. What he's talking about in verse 27 is the reality that the Father has given him all authority. And that is similar to what will come later at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, when Jesus was about to ascend to his Father's right hand and said, All authority has been given to me. And what he's saying in Matthew 11 verse 27, is a bit earlier than that. And so there's a sense in which these are two separate things that he's talking about because some other things happened leading up to that moment where he declared all authority was given to him. On the one hand, certainly Jesus has never been restricted in his authority because he's God. He's fully God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing and so on. But on the other hand, What happened when Jesus died and rose was something totally unique in the history of redemption and even, if I could use such a phrase, in the history of eternity. So what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28 is a little bit different than what he's talking about here in Matthew 11, 27. What he's talking about here, I believe, is the glorious relationship that he enjoys with his Father and always has, where Jesus and his Father share in perfect union and harmony. The Father knows Jesus unlike anyone else knows Jesus. Jesus knows His Father unlike anyone else knows the Father. And the Father has allowed, has given Jesus the authority to reveal Him, His Father, to anyone whom Jesus chooses. And that is glorious. That is majestic. These are thoughts that are too high for us at many moments in time. This is perfection. This is holiness. This is the glorious heart of Christ sharing in delight with His Father. And so this authority of Jesus is part of His glorious heart, a heart that enjoys perfect fellowship with His Father and that chooses those to whom the Father will be revealed and that always uses His authority to glorify His Father. Now, if this second part has seemed to you a bit more of an abstract concept, this third chamber may feel a little more comfortable for you where we see Jesus' invitation and his heart of grace. These are some of the most precious words for Christians. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. This is his 
heart. It's a kind of blossoming of the grace in the heart of Jesus here for us in this passage. His grace has certainly already been on display in Matthew's gospel, but in this context, it's quite refreshing, isn't it? Because just a few verses ago, Jesus was condemning those who never repent and believe. And now here, he gives an invitation for anyone to come and be blessed by him. The invitation here is to all. Even though God chooses to hide himself from some, the one requirement, if you can even call it that, is the understanding and acknowledgement, humbly so, of being in need of help with the burdens and labor of those who seek to enter the kingdom. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. The wise and intelligent of a few verses before are self-sufficient and fail to see their need. They do not act in humility and repentance. Their burden, their labor is not to them such a horrible thing. They've got it. But little children come willingly with a request for help with their burden because little children know that they need help. Parents like me often become exhausted by repetitive requests for help. And this is one of my many failures as a father that I am far too soon fed up with the number of times that I hear daddy as an introduction introduction to some question or complaint or request. But in reality, it's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is getting at here. Little children don't ask for anything if they don't think they need to ask for it. If they think they can do it, if they think they can find it, if they think they can have it, they go for it. But children do need a lot of help. And that's the mindset of a person in the kingdom of God. An awareness of the reality that they are totally helpless without Christ. What characterizes these people that Jesus is graciously inviting? Well, he's not inviting the wise and understanding. He's not inviting the self-sufficient, the self-satisfied, the self-righteous, those who are more quick to assume that the problem is outside of them, not inside of them. He's not inviting them. Why would they come to him? They already have what they want. They don't think they need him. They have no need to put their faith in him, so they have no place with him in his kingdom. Whom is he inviting? Those who are tired. Those who are tired from their work, from their heavy burdens, those weighed down with not feeling good enough. Kind of reminds me of the inscription on our Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Like the huddled masses yearning to be free, like my father's grandparents and perhaps some relatives of yours coming from Europe at the turn of the 20th century, Many are weary from the days and years of being overloaded and exhausted by the burden that comes from trying to do and be what it takes to be right with God. That is a burden too heavy for anyone to bear. 
except Jesus. And that is why he invites those who are exhausted and overwhelmed by their burdens to come to him. Because he will free all who come to him in faith. He will free them of their burdens. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the power to heal brokenness. He has a heart of grace moving him. Oh, friends, what grace is found in Christ. Look at the grace of Christ to come to earth. To make himself lowly like we are. To live life under the restraints of humanity. To to suffer fatigue. To suffer pain. To suffer sickness. To suffer heartache and heartbreak. And all the while, to never once transgress the law of God. What grace of Jesus to come and to live for us. And what grace of Jesus to die in our place on the cross as a substitution for sinners like you and like me. And what grace of God to raise Him from the dead, triumphant over sin. Oh, what grace. My friends, come to Jesus. All you who are overcome with the burden of trying to live up to what God wants you to be, all you who are heartbroken in this sin-cursed world, all you who are burning out, trying to fit in every possible ideal into your life, but in the process, squeezing out the Savior, come to Him, all who labor and are heavy laden. And then the fourth and final metaphorical chamber of Jesus' heart is where we see the climax of this passage. Jesus' promise, this heart of gentleness. He invites them to come and He promises to give them rest. Verse 29 then, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, And my burden is light. Oh, my friends, there is so much gospel grace here and we need it. So please just let it wash over you. I will give you rest at the end of verse 28. At the end of verse 29, you will find rest for your souls. Two times he promises rest to those who come to him in faith and humility. I don't think any of us in this room would turn down an offer of rest. Even our two-year-old, though rarely responding to the news of it being time for bed, as if they are tidings of great joy. But even he, when he gets tired enough, will actually tell us, I need to go sleep. Kids in general often think they don't need rest, but even at the age of many of the kids in this room, you'd probably rather rest than school, right? You'd probably rather rest than doing chores, right? You'd probably rather rest than work. It's generally how it works. And this rest is exactly what Jesus promises to those who come to him. He invites and he promises that those who accept his invitation will be blessed with rest. What grace from Jesus. Notice 
The first thing that his rest is connected to, it's connected to taking on his yoke. Now that might surprise you. You might expect him to say, take this pillow and lie down. Or take this voucher and go on a vacation. Or take my sleeping pills and get some sleep. But he doesn't say that, does he? Instead, listen, he connects kingdom rest to kingdom work. A yoke is for working. And it may be that instead of the kind of yoke you might be thinking of, where two oxen are connected together and get the work done as a team, he may have been thinking of a human yoke, which was designed to be worn on the back and alleviate the burden of the manual labor being undertaken and make it a little bit easier. It was designed not to take away the burden immediately, but to make it better to bear it with the yoke than trying to bear it without the yoke. Did you hear that? It's exactly what will happen to all who take Jesus' yoke instead of taking up their own yoke that they've designed for themselves or the yoke of their own religious devotion designed by others. The, the yoke of Jesus does not lead to the burden being removed immediately, but it is better to bear the burden with the yoke of Jesus than it is to try to bear it without it. Oh, what grace of Jesus. What else do you notice his rest is connected to? It's connected to learning. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. Not the teachings of the Pharisees, not the teachings of the scribes, not the legalistic traditions that the Jews had twisted into requirements, but the teachings of Jesus. And not only the facts that he said, but him himself. Learn of me, learn from me, and learn who I am, this one who is the fulfillment of the law. Learn of me, he says. Not them. What grace from Jesus. And this one final connection to Jesus' rest that we see here is that it's connected to his burden. And this might surprise you too. He is at least implying that there is a burden that comes when you're his. But he also describes his burden as light. I wonder if it might be best for us to think of Jesus' words here as being more about the lightness of the burden than the burden itself. And so to not get too hung up on the burden, but rather that it is a burden that is light. I think that's the point that Jesus is making. Compared to the heavy burdens of the law, compared to the soul-crushing weight of the traditions and the extra requirements of the Jews, Jesus' burden is light. What grace from Christ. You see, again, what we think life is supposed to look like isn't necessarily what Jesus is calling us to. Because who wants a wooden tool strapped and buckled onto their backs if they're looking for rest? How is that easy and light? You see, my friends, it's not that there are no requirements to following Jesus, if I can put it that way. It's not that the commands of God don't matter anymore when you come to him. There is a sense to which there is a load to carry. There are commands to obey. But what a difference it makes 
when the burden of fulfilling the law no longer needs to be carried. Because Jesus did it. What a difference it makes when the burden of living up to God's standard is no longer something that you have to accomplish because Jesus accomplished it for you. What grace from Jesus. We also have here one of the most astonishing and beautiful phrases in all the New Testament in verse 29 where Jesus describes his heart as a heart of gentleness. Take my yoke, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the subject of the book that we've been giving away over the last couple of years. I think we have a few left. If you haven't gotten one yet, please take it and read it. It's a beautiful uh, work by Gavin Ortland describing and expositing this in greater detail. You will be blessed by it. Isn't it amazing that the Lord Jesus gives us a window into His perfect, holy heart? And to be sure, He is more than gentle and lowly. He is wrathful. He is strong. He is truth. But according to Jesus Himself at this very moment, at His core, at the center of who He is, He is gentle and lowly. In heart. Now, if you're like a little bit more like John the Baptist and you'd rather focus on the wrath and vengeance and justice of Jesus, well, like John the Baptist, you're going to have to take that up with Jesus. Because this is how Jesus describes himself here. And what a contrast it is to the harsh, condescending, prideful, and abusive nature of the religious leaders of the Jews. And what a contrast to the hearts of all of us who at times see ourselves doing rather well, whose lives are constantly or at least frequently marked by looking down on others, whose lives are at times colored by the fear of not measuring up. Jesus, unlike them and unlike us, is gentle and lowly. He is kind. He is meek. He is compassionate. He is sympathetic. He is tender. He is merciful. He is gracious. Oh, what grace from Jesus. And what's interesting is that when his yoke is worn, when his teachings are learned, when his burden is the one that matters, then rest comes to our souls. Last word of verse 29 in your ESV, if you are using an ESV, is the word for soul. But I'm not totally sure whether or not that's the best way for this Greek word, suke, should be translated. It's a word we've actually seen before. I've had a slide like this up during this series before. It communicates the deepest level of who someone is. You see that definition there, the seat of the affections and the will. And so soul certainly is by no means a bad translation at all. But I wonder if some of us in this room might resonate a little bit more with a word like heart. Think if you say it this way, you will find rest for your heart. Rest for the deepest, innermost, most intimate and central aspect of who you are. 
Rest that comes not through the relaxing of Jesus' commands, but rest that comes from knowing that God has made your obedience to those commands possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in fact has accomplished that obedience for you. When you're striving and straining for perfection or rightness with every ounce of your being, my friend, you will be anxious. You will be exhausted. You will burn out. But when Jesus has already accomplished perfection for you, and now your life is simply about a faith-fueled, love-motivated following Him in discipleship, rest will come to your heart. And your burden, His burden, will be light. Oh, friends, can you imagine what Redeemer Bible Church would look like if the people of Jesus here mirrored the gracious and gentle heart of Jesus in this passage? Looking at the brokenness and weakness and sinfulness of others, whether believer or unbeliever, with the gentleness and humility and grace of Jesus instead of the judgment and the self-righteousness of our own sinful flesh. Friends, I probably don't have to tell you that is something that has been missing in the church today. It's something that this church has been missing at some really crucial times in our history. But by God's grace, I can see that it is something growing here. And it is beautiful to see. Friends, think about how many more could be drawn to saving faith in Jesus through our church's gospel, grace, and gentleness. And how many believers in this body or even outside of our church will have an easier time being real about their struggles instead of hiding them. Friends, there are some big and important and at times painful things that have been happening in our church over the last few years. And I am 100% convinced that God is totally behind it. People are being saved. Christians are engaging with the grace of the gospel in their lives through the means of the grace of the Lord through the body of Christ as He is ordained as the means of grace. So God is at work here, and it is exciting, isn't it? And it's all through this Jesus whose heart is seen in these words and who calls us to follow Him. And so what is it that Jesus is doing in saying all of this at the end of a sort of mini-discourse in small sections about trusting His kingdom plans and about believing on Him and about repentance? I think he's continuing to show us his astonishingly beautiful and glorious nature. I think he's calling people in this very room and anyone listening live or later to join him in his unexpected kingdom. Whether you're someone who is a believer at this moment or someone who is not, the call is for you. A call perhaps to repent and to believe in Christ and begin your journey as His child. Perhaps a call to repent and forsake some things as a child of God that are getting in the way of your walk with Him. Now in just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to take a few minutes as we do every week in quiet 
meditation and prayer. And I would invite you in those moments to ask the Lord to search your heart and show you what you must do in response to this passage of Scripture. And ask Him to continue to mold and shape this church into a place where the gospel grace of Jesus continues to grow and thrives and then transforms people's lives. May He be glorified. Let's pray. God, as always, we marvel at the astonishing goodness and wisdom and power that is yours that we've seen in this passage. I'm praying that any in this room here now who has never repented of sin and trusted in Christ would do so today. And that any and all of us in this room who are already your children but who need this reminder of gospel grace and who may need to turn from things in our own lives as Christians would respond accordingly because of what your word says. Amen. Let's continue in prayer.